Hey there, check it out. It's another episode of Film Streak. My name is Rob, and you know what I like to do here is watch movies that I've never seen before, finally getting around to, maybe I just ignored, maybe I didn't even know about in the first place. You know what it is. This episode, I'm going to pick up where I left off with Film Streak, but I'm also going to pick up where we left off with the last episode. I'm just catching up with some Oscar nominated films. And some of these. Uh, I wanted to see. I just never could get around to it, uh, whether seeing it in theaters or whatever. And they're finally making their way to streaming and home video. So now's a chance I'm finally able to do that. And, uh, you know, if you want to see, uh, I take it back. If you want to hear the previous episode, I talked about some other no- some other Oscar-nominated films. You can do that at filmstreak.com. You can also go there and find other episodes. I've been doing this for, this is the second year of Film Streak now. Still going. 200 plus films. Uh, You can go there and sign up to get the films, um, not the films, get the episodes sent directly to your inbox by email. Makes it easy for you. Or you could do it, you know, the old-fashioned way, the way the OG podcasters do where you got to go and subscribe in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever. Hey, it's your preference. You do whatever you want. But also, at filmstreak.com, you can go there and get a list of all of the films that I've been talking about in these episodes. And that's on IMDb. I'm just using it to keep track of the films and to kind of remember what order and then what I rated them and all that. You can do the same. You can go there and rate and review them on your own. You can add them to your watch list, or um, you can even see where they might be available for streaming or, or where to get tickets even. So it's kind of handy like that, you know? So what I want to do here is uh, I just want to get back into it. Let's get back to Film Streak, okay? Let's get it going. All right, so... Here we are, picking up with Film Street 213, Empire of Light. Look around you. This whole place is for people who want to escape. People who don't belong anywhere else. How do you feel? I do feel a bit numb, I suppose. The world is changed. You can't reverse it. Another world. Happy New Year! You can't just give up. Don't let them tell you what you can or can't do. All these people. I'm the only one who knows the truth. Do you understand me? I'm the only one! Hillary, please open the door. Here's to the future. Here's to getting back up. Here's the coming home. A 
okay, so look, that was written and directed by filmmaker Sam Mendes, who uh, previously did 1917, big deal, big Oscar-winning film. Um, also did a couple of really impressive James Bond films. Uh, it goes way back. He's a very accomplished filmmaker and has a very distinct style, I think, and um, a very, uh, I'd say, a very measured approach to to filmmaking. And of course, a lot of his films seem to be bigger in scope and even in spectacle. And this is a film that really takes it back, just steps it down to something that's a little more subtle and a little quiet and maybe even uh, gentle in terms of um, the characters, you know, the, the portrayal of the characters. You know, we have Olivia Coleman here. She plays Hillary and she's a, a middle-aged woman that works in this, uh, I'd say, just a very quiet British cinema Um She's single and really just seems kind of weary and and uh, almost cold and, and detached in a way. And it's not really clear why at the beginning of the film, but as we kind of see, she, she struggles a little bit with just being um, socially active and is maybe just a little too awkward for most situations. And so when the theater hires a new employee by the name of Steven, played by Michael Ward here, which, you know, I, I, I'll just say this, first of all, this guy, I, I don't know if I've seen him in anything else. It doesn't, he doesn't look familiar, but I like the presence he brings to this film. One thing is the dynamic between Hillary and Steven is very, um, it starts off a little rocky and you're not really clear on, is she going to have a problem with him? Uh, does she maybe see something in him? And it starts to develop their their friendship, their relationship as co-workers turns into a much more intimate and romantic relationship as the film goes on. And it seems very unlikely that this would really be the relationship you would you would bet any money on. And yet Hillary here and, and Olivia Coleman is really doing some interesting work here, I think, just because she, I feel like in every film I've seen her in, she really uh, excels at just playing the bothered, put upon, uh, just very weary personality. And, but then she can turn it around and bring light and bring a joy and, 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 a sense of, uh, even a sense of awe sometimes. And so to have that kind of range, this this is a film that at least needs that. Because this character, as we find out, is definitely dealing with some heavy stuff. Emotional baggage and even some mental instability. Uh, it all kind of, Stephen, the character, he gets wrapped up in this and we do see a little bit of his story and his background and, and he's young, you know, he, we're seeing that he's just getting life started. He's just trying to figure out where his next step is going to be. And for Hillary, like that's not the point in life that she's at. So, you know, there's a point where these two characters, they, their lives intersect. And then at some point they, they start to go their own way. 
Now, I'm leaving out a lot of the, the dramatic moments and the reasons why. The point, though, is that this film at least plays it, it plays in the nuance. You know, it, it doesn't get too big and showy. There are a couple of moments of humor and, and some lighter touches that it has. And there are even some moments where it gets really serious and kind of, uh, kind of disturbing as we find out what Hillary might be going through. And it, it, there's even a point towards the middle of the film where she has a little bit of a public meltdown. Um, she kind of takes control of an event. Uh, it was like a, um, it was a premiere of Chariots of Fire. You know, this play, this film takes place in the 80s, I think 1980 and 81. And so Chariots of Fire is debuting, having a premiere at this theater. And it's a big deal. The mayor is coming and, and it's just a, a it's a red carpet event. And Hillary, unannounced, just takes the stage and makes a statement, tries to make a point to the whole proceedings and really just embarrasses herself and embarrasses the staff, the, the her co-workers at the cinema. And, um, you know, that's a moment where it feels very awkward. It's, it's really painful to kind of watch. And, and then you just don't know what's going to come out of it. So it's even kind of tense. But, you know, with that said, I, I think there's some strengths and, and there's some problems with this film, at least in terms of the story. I would say that I like being able to explore this character and maybe what is going on with her and what this means, especially in this period of time. So, you know, the, the, the backdrop of this is that this is the, right around the turn of the early 80s where there are elements on the streets there are elements in the world that are a real problem culturally and and with that particular part of the world and Stephen a young black man he gets caught up in it you know there are racists that are kind of uh harassing him and you know the the first time that it happens we see Hillary she she watches this she notices it and i got to say i mean just when that scene happens early in the film, I just started the clock. I started the clock t- uh, ticking because I just figured Stephen is uh, Stephen's not going to make it to the end of this film. I was really worried. And I didn't know if this would be that kind of film that goes to that place. And in truth, it really doesn't. But at least it introduces that element because it's part of the dynamic of these of these two characters in this relationship is their the grounds that they're basing this relationship on is just troubled from the start. One from Hillary's side, she's got her own mental and emotional issues she's struggling with. And then from Steven's side, he's got his background and his ethnicity that are worming their way between them and whatever their possibility of a relationship could ever be. Right? So, it just seems like it's just doomed to to never work. And ultimately, the film kind of comes down to that. Is like, this is not a film about these two people falling in love and living happily ever after and, and going on with their lives. This is a film about these two people who, they just happen to pass each other in this one moment in time. 
And once that moment passes, well, they still have to go on with their lives and they go on in different directions. And it's not about hanging on to it. Although for Hillary, it really seems to be that until she has a turn, she has a moment of, of revelation when Stephen says, you work in a movie theater and you've never sat and watched a movie. And so when she finally does that towards the end of the film, she starts to understand everything that he had told her about what film could mean and, and what film can do for, for the soul and for mankind even. The, the art of storytelling through cinema is a really actually interesting point in the film when that comes out and he tries to break it down to her. And... You know, with that in mind, I like that this film at least does that. It it nods to not filmmaking necessarily and not Hollywood and that whole culture, but just to the 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 sense of being in awe and being in love with going to the movies, the experience itself. And you know, part of me thinks that's probably a big reason why this movie was even made. Because I think on its surface, the, the story of these two characters, it's, it's got some interesting beats to it, but I don't think it's strong enough to just be its own movie. I think it's got to be something that's set in this particular time and even in this particular workplace and location. Because, uh, you know, me, the, the first job I ever had, I worked in a movie theater and I remember those days. I still look at those days very fondly. It was a long time ago. seems like a, a lifetime ago. But I look at those days and think back to that sense of wonder and that sense of uh, excitement over just seeing a new film and being in an auditorium and, and literally seeing the, the light coming through the, the projection booth onto the screen. It was, it was, there was a sense of magic to that. And the fact that everything that's being projected on this 40 foot screen in front of you, it's something that it, it's, it's chemistry, it's technology, it's, it's all of these, all of these things inside the camera that have to come together. And then everything in front of the camera that has to come together, acting, performances, music, light, shadow, so much of that stuff that all of those pieces have to line up just right to find its way to you where you can enjoy it. And I, you know, I still love going to the movies and I feel like this, this film at least took me there in some way. And the sad part, I guess, is that I watched this at home on a television, which is, I'm sure, never the way Sam Mendes or Roger Deakins, who is, here's the Oscar nomination, right? He's nominated for Best Cinematography. And this film does look beautiful, and it is composed and shot in, of course, top-notch form. And and yet, I, I think... The tragedy of it is that this is an era and, and, a, and a way of viewing entertainment that is changing. And I don't want to say it's going away. I don't want to say it's dying. I don't believe that. 
But I do know I can accept that it is changing. And it's strange to think that a movie about people working in a movie theater and watching and projecting films on film, it's strange to me from being in that position and having lived and and seen that firsthand. It's strange to me that that is now a period piece. Like, this is a film from history now. Like, this doesn't exist anymore, really. The problem with this film, I think, is that the story, this dynamic between these two characters, I think it's unique. It's a little bit interesting. But at the same time, I just, I don't know that, I just don't know that if you flip these two characters, if this was an older white man and a young black girl, or, I mean, flip it any way you want. I just don't know that this story really feels right. It starts to feel creepy when you turn some of the tables here, you know? And on its face, even, you know, uh, Olivia Coleman's not that old. And uh, I just feel like, and Michael Ward, he's not that young. But the ages of the characters, uh, it's a little hard for me to line that up. And so that's where I, I just... It doesn't disturb me. It doesn't turn me off to the film, but it does kind of make me look at it a little bit sideways, you know? But look, overall, I'd recommend it. I'd recommend you check it out. Um, Right now, I saw this on HBO Max. So go check that one out there. Um, Enjoy the cinematography. Watch it in 4K or watch it on the biggest screen you can. It is a beautiful film. It's very... uh, It's just a very deliberately and purposefully created and crafted film and appreciate it for that at least maybe the story doesn't really float your boat maybe it's a little bit lightweight but at least enjoy the enjoy the empire of light right so all right so that's empire of light let's keep it moving Okay, here we are now. Look at this. We're on Film Street 214. This is Blonde. Miss Monroe, it's time. A kiss on the hand. How'd you get your start? Maybe. What, Tart? In movies. Quite continental. But diamonds are a girl's best friend. I guess I was discovered. Men broke home as girls. I know you're supposed to get used to it. And we all lose our jobs in the end. But I just can't. I've played Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe. I can't face doing another scene with Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn doesn't exist. 
I come out of my dressing room, I'm Norma Jean. I'm still hurt when the camera is rolling. Oh boy. Okay. So this is uh, this is uh, the the latest film from director Andrew Dominic, and it's based on a, a book by George Carol Oates. Um, you know, I I'm not familiar with the book. I'm. You know, honestly, I'm not familiar with Marilyn Monroe. I know who she is, of course. Uh, I recognize the face. I recognize she was a a big, important personality and icon of cinema and even fashion and just popular culture for, what, 60, 70 years at this point. I recognize that. Here's the thing for Filmstreak. I guess I got to watch some Marilyn Monroe movies because... I can't really tell you anything about any of her films. And so, okay, I'll get on that. In the meantime, this film, this film is, wow, this film is rough. And I mean rough in terms of, uh, oh, it's, it's punishing. And, you know, hands are uh, just, uh, uh, it's even hard to talk about, really. I mean, a round of applause for Ananda Armas, who really, man, really owns this role. There are some issues with it, but the links and the depths that she goes to in this film, um, man, it's a lot. And so, uh, I mean, just to break down the story of it, uh, if you're not familiar, if you've never read the book, of course, I, I, who, who has? Uh, it's an old book, I'm just saying. The film starts with Norma Jean as a child with her mentally unstable, abusive uh, mother who, who, one, is partially delusional that... Uh, Marilyn, or I say Marilyn, Norma Jean's father is somebody very, uh, very important and a very public figure and is almost, um, I I don't want to say ashamed of Norma Jean, but um, doesn't claim her, maybe just doesn't accept that he has a daughter, if this is even her father, right? Uh, It's hard to know who to trust and who's telling how much of the truth and how much not. But the way Norma Jean's mother, Gladys, is depicted here, is very clearly she's out of her goddamn mind. So as we see a little bit of what Norma Jean's childhood was like and how just wild and and upsetting it can be and traumatic, ultimately, um we start to see Norma Jean move into a little bit of, move into the direction of becoming Marilyn, 
you know, we see her getting started with modeling. And, you know, even the really, um, really disturbing and, and abusive way that she lands a, her first role. And, you know, the film makes it a point to say, this is a, a, a young woman, a girl who clearly needed attention, needed guidance, needed help. And everybody that comes into her life, just about everybody, either fails to see that or they just don't care. And they're just going to use her and abuse her and do whatever they feel like at her, with her at their disposal. And I think the the thing that the film does, uh, I feel like the film succeeds by showing us the ways that life, whether you're Norma Jean or whether you're just nobody, to, to paraphrase basically, the way that life can throw things at you by no fault of anybody else or, or even through your own fault that force you or at least spur you to relive your own trauma. I, I know I've had those moments myself. I'm sure most of us have. And here is a film where it's really, sometimes it's a little heavy handed. Sometimes it's a little too on the nose, a little too obvious of, oh, of course, this would happen to her and make her relive the time that her mom did this to her. Uh, I, maybe it needs to be that way. I don't know. And sometimes it does happen that way, right? But here, um, the, the commitment by Anna Dadmas, who really does... I think physically embody Norma Jean and Marilyn, even if there's a man, there's, there's a problem with the accent. We just, I just got to say that up the top here, but aside from that, she really does embody this character of not only like looks wise, but also embodies that pain and embodies that, uh, skittishness and that, um, anxiety that comes with that. And I look, that's this film. That's the Oscar nomination, right? For best actress. And from the films I've seen so far, this one is up there. I I really, you know, if it weren't for the accent, I would say this was my vote. (laughs) You take the accent into account. uh, I don't know if I, I can't let go of that ballot yet, but I'll just say that for all the the pain and, and the anguish that we see this character go through, you know, the other side of it is like this, this was a real person. And how much of this is fictionalized? How much of this is exaggerated? And how much of this is like stone cold truth? I don't know. And I don't know that many of us will ever know. The people who probably know this for for sure, like the actual truth of these things that happened or these people that were in her life, are probably all either gone or um, 
they're bound to silence by some bigger force than maybe any of us ever understand. I mean, when you've got the president in this film doing some pretty disgusting things and uh, not blinking an eye at it, yeah, it's pretty tough. And so, you know, I, I'll just say this. I mean, this, this film does go through a lot of, well, it goes through all of Norma Jean's life, from her childhood into young Norma Jean into becoming an actress and then becoming Marilyn. And even like once the films kind of start to not matter anymore, and it's just the fact that she's Marilyn, that's a pretty big deal. And to see that growth, or I don't even know if it's growth, uh, just to see that change in a person, in, in this character at least, uh, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of work that's going into this. And for me, I guess the eye-opening part to it all is that I guess I need to see some Marilyn, uh, whoa, almost said a different name, some Marilyn Monroe films. Because I always had a very specific uh, uh, idea in mind of who Marilyn Monroe was, just as a personality. And at least in some moments and in some ways that it's depicted here, she was not that person. She was a much deeper and, and a much more wounded person than maybe any of us ever knew. And so to know that Norma Jean didn't want to be Marilyn all the time, and she didn't want to be in a quote-unquote Marilyn film. She wanted to be a serious actress and studied and read and was very literate, but was denied all of that because of her looks, because of some preconceived notion. And that's the tragedy of it all, right? So... I think um, if you're not familiar with Marilyn, this this might not be where you want to start, even though I'm sure that is uh, very much the intention is like this is kind of a big summation of who this person was and why she did the things that she did in her life. But uh, on the other hand, maybe the films themselves, they don't say they don't give us the complete picture either. So maybe you take a little bit of both, right? And and you land somewhere in the middle and maybe you have the real Norma Jean and her real life. Um, I will say this, the, 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 the intensity of this film, it is not, it's not for the faint of heart. And I just mean that it's not overly violent or, uh, even, you know, it's rated NC-17. It's not even really explicitly graphic that that might th- make you think it would be. But it is, I could see, of course, totally triggering and um, could be traumatizing for people. Because some of the the moments and the events that are depicted here are... Uh, oof, they're heavy and they're, they're disturbing. 
And to think that this was a person that dealt with this and lived through this and and struggled with this, with these things that happened to her, with the the uh, the drug addiction, with the mental and emotional abuse, with the physical abuse, uh, it's a lot. And so I, you know, I say, think think about it before you just dive right in. Know that it's not going to be a good time. And as much as, as much as this character is really kind of brought to life, it's still a matter of we're really witnessing a slow motion train wreck. And when you keep that in mind, you realize that this is a real, um, this is a real tragedy. And I'm sure that's, that's a big aim of this film is to really depict this and hit you over the head with it and, and at least get you to pay attention. So, you know, it's a recommendation from me. I'll say that. Um, it's kind of a tough watch and it is pretty long. I think it's like almost three hours long. And yet it does give you, I feel like at least a pretty rounded picture. Like you, you don't really have too many gaps. I mean, it really addresses her relationships, her marriages, her film career, her uh, emotional problems, her, her drug addiction problems. Um, it, it goes through, it runs the whole gamut. And I, you know, like I said, the only thing I really wish, the only thing that I think keeps this from being like a solid recommendation is the accent. And I'm not saying that you can't have an accent, but playing a very distinct, very well-known person, a real-life person who is recorded, is documented, we know what she sounded like. And to bring an accent with it, even though it's not like, it's not an anonymous, actual, full Cuban accent, but it's still in there. Like, it, there's a lot of points where it just doesn't quite sound like what I, I think what Marilyn sounded like from clips and, and audio that I've heard in the past. And... What it, you know? What is actually shocking? I say shocking, but is really impressive, is that there are scenes and there are shots where I it's I just totally see Marilyn instead of Anadarmas. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Elvis uh, the, the Elvis with Austin Butler, where there are certain shots, certain angles with the light a certain way, and I'm like. I am I looking at real footage or am I looking at new footage? Like what am I looking at the real person or the actor? And is there are some moments where it's really convincing. And so I think that is actually that's another aspect here is that some of the the cinematography um you know there's a little bit of playing with aspect ratios and going from color to black and white and I think that kind of helps us frame where we are either in time or even emotionally like our whose point of view are we kind of coming from and the idea that this film does so much work to recreate these really iconic and really 
uh, etched into our mind images, uh, moments of Marilyn Monroe. And does it really faithfully? I mean, you see some of the stills, you can see some of the clips. All throughout the film, there are moments that, like I said, I've never seen an actual Marilyn Monroe film, but I recognize so many of the moments and the the shots in films and uh, just some of the compositions. I recognize them because they're so iconic. They permeated all of popular culture. And this film really does a great job of recreating that. Because it would have been so much easier to just use the actual footage, the actual photos. And yet we've got all new renditions of those moments. And so I I give it nods for that. You know, it's really a lot of work, both technically and then in terms of the performance that that comes through and it's impressive. So it's just, it's, it's kind of a hard watch. So just keep that in mind and uh, check that one out. I think that is a Netflix exclusive. So if you got Netflix, there you go, go, go see it. All right, let's keep it moving. Okay. So here we go. Next up, Film Streak 215, Tar. Time is the thing. Time is the essential piece of interpretation. You cannot start without me. I start the clock. However, unlike a clock, sometimes my second hand stops which means time stops. The reality is that it's not until I once again decide to raise that hand that time is allowed to continue marching along her very merry way. So look, here is the latest film, It's Been a While, from writer and director Todd Field, who, um, you know, I I remember seeing in some movies in the 90s, I think it was in like, uh, was it Twister and Eyes Wide Shut, which, uh, hey, it's, it's a favorite, personally, um, but went on to be a filmmaker and in, in the bedroom in 2001, uh, Little Children in 2006, I think. And, you know, those were really impressive films from someone who, I, I think at a glance, most people would think, well, this is just one of those character actors that just kind of plays all these supporting roles. 
it really turned into a, a really incredible and, and uh, I don't know, a very specific type of filmmaker. And this film on its own with Kate Blanchett, she plays a, a, just a wildly accomplished composer and conductor that is, um, I mean, talk about an overachiever. There's, there's a scene at the beginning of the film where she's doing some kind of a, it's like an interview. The interviewer is giving all of her accolades and all of her accomplishments and, and all of this. And I mean, it must be five minutes of just listing what she does and what she's known from. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And so when you start to film like that, you really build this character to be just, um, just beyond human possibility, right? In terms of her talent or her accomplishments or her genius, however you want to phrase it. And through the course of the film, when we start that high, we've got our own Mount Olympus up there. But through the course of the film, we start to chip away at that. And as much as Lydia Tarr tries to hold that line and tries to maintain control of that intellectual, uh, charming, uh, just ever-present personality, that, that image that she's built for herself... There are just things in the world around her that either conspire deliberately or just uh, through circumstance chip away at that. And eventually it starts to unravel. Now, the way it kind of plays out in the film is that uh, there are some things that happened in her past that are kind of lingering some questions about a former, uh, was it like an assistant conductor, someone who seems to kind of be, um, not harassing her, but, um, still trying to find a way into her life. And Lydia Tarr is very much trying to leave that behind and ignore that and pretend that never happened. And at the same time, she's also, rehearsing and and working to record um what was it it was like oh uh, it was a it was Mahler's like symphony number no. 5 i think with the um i think it was the berlin symphony cuz she was in germany right and so going through this whole process of doing this getting this work done trying to focus but also uh having some run-ins or incidents at Juilliard with students and kind of the clash of of minds and the clash of ideals over what is music and what art is acceptable and what does it matter who you are and your background, your ethnicity, your gender. There's so many different elements of society, factors of just the way the world thinks and the way the world moves that are part of this film. And Lydia seems to cross, run crossways to all of those at one point or another. And eventually it all starts to come apart. You know, we learn that um, Lydia is not really who she started out as in life. 
and it all does catch up with her. And by the end of the film, she does have her comeuppance in a way. Although, you know, you could view it from her eyes, from her perspective, as this is just absolutely tragic that her life so uh, so esteemed and so um, curated has just all come apart from her work to her family to her home. It's all been basically destroyed. And, you know, on a, in terms of the premise, I feel like that's an interesting story. There are some other elements here that I think work and maybe don't work. You know, Kate Blanchett, I I always enjoy watching her in films. I think she's got a real presence and a real strength. And here as this character, she like leans into that in big ways. And even, you know, she does things with her voice and her physicality that really change like I don't there's a point in this film I I can't really pin it down but there's a point where I forget that I'm watching Kate Blanchett and I'm watching Lydia Tarr and uh that's impressive so to see that happening but then also the the idea that music and art on this level Right, like this is we're talking about way upper echelon stuff here, you know. the The ideas that she espouses, that she really tries to um, convey, talking about music and composition and technique and meaning. There's so many things in here about what is music and. What does it mean to us, whether to a person or to a society? And how can how can things like academia or the news or the, the the news media how can they invalidate the work, the craftsmanship, the creativity that goes into art? And that's a real that's a real. Uh, that's a fine line. I think about that myself. Like if I look at some of the, the filmmakers that I've watched films from, I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I can enjoy this because of who made this. And, you know, if you think about it in that way, like, I, I, let's go down that road for a second, right? It's like, I, I've watched in all of my life, I've watched one Woody Allen film. And up to a point, it was just because I didn't really see anything of interest there. I didn't really understand it. You know, I didn't I didn't grow up in the, that era where the 70s and 80s Woody Allen films were big deals. That was before my time, I guess. But even then, afterwards, well, once you start hearing things and seeing things about Woody Allen, uh, no thanks. I'm not interested. And so you think about that. I mean, Roman Polanski is another who I've watched a handful of his films. But once I saw or learned about 
what happened and why he's, you know, on the run, why he's never been to the U.S. since, what, 1970-something or whatever it was. Uh, once I started to understand that whole case and that whole situation, I'm like, you know what? No thanks. Not interested. And that doesn't mean those films aren't good. It doesn't mean the creativity and the work that went into them isn't valid. But it just means that I feel like to watch something like that, whether I enjoy it or not, is in a way to support it. And do I want to support something like that? And to me, there's a difference between that, which I, it's a very real kind of uh, question for me. And then do I not watch a film because it was directed or created by uh, an old white man in the 50s? And old white men, you know, their day is gone. No, that's not really the same. I'm sure there were plenty of uh, amazing, established, talented filmmakers from all eras that uh, their work is legitimate. Now, whether the stories they told, maybe those have not aged well. Maybe those are kind of outdated. But the work is certainly legitimate. And so that's kind of the question. Now, now the problem I have with this film is that it's all of these questions, all of these dilemmas based in the world of classical music and symphonies and, and composers and conductors. And I just, maybe it's like a real European thing, you know? I just, I here in the U.S., I don't know if we really, we really worry about that too much. Now, I know there are real cases. It's, it's even shown um, there are some examples in this film that are mentioned that these real things did happen to real orchestras and, and composers and, and so forth, that there were accusations, there were uh, charges, there were you know all these things that were going on as they were going on in every industry, especially in entertainment, because it's so visible. And... Still, I just think you know, there's, there's a moment in this film where social media is blowing up and the news is blowing up because Lydia Tarr has these accusations coming at her. And what is she going to do? And what is the uh, Berlin Symphony? What are they going to do? What, you know, who, who's going to be responsible for this? And I, I don't know. Do we just worry about classical music that much anymore? I, I'm not to say that the the idea here isn't legitimate, but uh, it, I think the backdrop is a little bit hard to it's a little bit hard to digest. And yet, if you were to set this in the world of film, for instance, um, I mean, it's happening for real, and I think people would very quickly and and maybe more easily be able to kind of get the idea here. You know, if this, if Lydia Tarr was a film producer who did some things that were questionable and maybe unsavory and maybe illegal, people would really be able to relate to this film a lot deeper. Now, the fact that you set it in this world of classical music, um, one, I think it, it's a little bit of a cheat to make it seem a lot more 
intellectual and maybe more high-minded. But as we see by the end of the film, no, Lydia Tarr is just another person. She's not on Mount Olympus. She never was, really. Maybe she said she was enough that people started to believe it. But uh, we, we start to learn that, no, she's just like everybody else. She can fall just as hard as anybody else. And um, so, you know, I think a lot of how you enjoy this film or what you enjoy about this film is going to come down to do you do you side with Lydia Tarr or do you really understand how this is a bad person? You know, is she the good guy or is she the bad guy? And by the end of the film, maybe you'll have a better idea of that. But for me, it was a little bit, uh, it was on that line. And I, maybe that was part of the idea is I, th- I think I'm supposed to understand what this person is going through, but at the same time, kind of don't like her, you know? So it's definitely a recommendation. It's a great performance. It's really well put together. You know, the Oscar nominations we're talking about here, of course, Kate Blanchett for Best Actress. Uh, I think Best Cinematography also. And also Todd Field, of course, for Best Screenplay and Best Director. Uh, I just, uh, I'm really excited about that, actually. Um, I'm sure there, there might even be some other nominations. Um, but I know this is one that a lot of people seem to have talked about, especially in creative circles. I've heard this this title come up over and over. And so it was very interesting to me, very intriguing, really. And yet um, I, I still come away mixed on, like, how do I feel about this character? Because I kind of get it. I get the weight that she wants to bring to her work and and the industry, the, the, the culture that she moves in. And yet, when you start to punch through that and you see, oh, it's kind of manufactured. It's kind of not necessarily real. Even to the point where, you know, I, I actually got to say, there's a couple of things in this film that really impressed me. They're super subtle. One of them is the way this movie uses sound. And by sound, I sometimes mean the way it uses the absence of sound, you know, the, the silence. You know, Lydia lives in a very kind of insulated um, home and, and, a, and a, has a way of life that is really not in the real world. It's not in the world you and I live in. Even, you know, she drives an electric Porsche that makes no sound, really. And even the moments when little sounds start to inject their way into her life, they annoy her or they they grate on her. And she doesn't, it it gives her anxiety and it it just, it's like that other version of herself trying to edge its way in, trying to find the cracks in the armor. And I thought it was really, it was really a nice use of sound and how that can inform what this character is going through. The tiniest of little sounds are grating to her. 
And she just can't, there's the moments where she can't handle it. Because it's, it's like a representation of that loss of control. And the other thing is, on a visual aspect, the way this film uses mirrors, and whether she's brushing her teeth or getting dressed, or there's just enough small moments where we see Lydia looking into mirrors or standing next to mirrors or surrounded by mirrors that I think subconsciously it kind of starts to let you know there's something else about Lydia we're not seeing. She sees it. She sees it in the mirror. She sees it when she looks at herself, but we don't really see it yet. And we do start to see it at the end of the film. We There's a big scene where things are revealed and we realize, oh, that's why she is the way she is. So with that in mind, look, that's a recommendation for me. Um, personally, I saw this on Peacock. Um, it's available now. I don't know if it's how long it's going to be available, but I did see it there. Uh, you may even be able to rent it or buy it. Um, it's a recommendation for sure. Uh, it's a very different kind of film, a very different type of tone than I was expecting. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a lot more about the music. There is a lot of music talk in it, but it's not about the music. It really is about this character and the kind of games that her mind has created for herself, the maze that she is somehow built so tightly, so densely, and she can't now find her way out of it. So that's a recommendation. Check that one out. Okay, so look, that was another episode of Film Streak. Hey, thanks for checking it out. Thanks for sticking around. Uh, if you want to hear some other episodes, a previous episode, I talked about some other Oscar-nominated films. And... um you can check those out at filmstreak.com. You can sign up to get the episodes directly to your inbox again. And you know what? Look, if you don't agree, you don't understand, like, what the hell is this guy talking about with these movies? He's all wrong. Leave a comment. You can leave a comment at filmstreak.com. You can go send an email. Just send it right to me at comments at filmstreak.com also. Okay? Do that. Go check out some of the movies. I'm going to go do the same. i got a few more I want to talk about in the next episode. I'm already on it, okay? I'm getting into it. So, until then, we'll talk later and uh, go watch some new movies.